Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 273 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Bill Nye, one of America's best-known science educators. From 1993 to 1998, he hosted the Bill Nye the Science Guy show on PBS, and he just finished filming the second season of his Netflix series, Bill Nye Saves the World. He's also the CEO of the Planetary Society, which is the largest nonprofit organization promoting space exploration, and he's the author of the books Undeniable, Evolution and the Science of Creation, and Unstoppable, Harnessing Science to Change the World. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new book, Everything All at Once, How to Unleash Your Inner Nerd, Tap into Radical Curiosity, and Solve Any Problem. I also just want to mention that I've agreed to be one of the judges for a science fiction short story contest with a $12,000 grand prize. The contest is called Into the Black, Speculative Economies, and it's sponsored by the Economic Security Project, which advocates for the universal basic income. The universal basic income is the idea that everyone should be given regular, unconditional cash payments that are high enough to meet their basic needs. This would eliminate severe economic hardship, provide a massive boost to the economy by stimulating demand, and free up more people to pursue their passions or care for loved ones. Many public figures such as Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg have endorsed the idea, stating that something along these lines will be necessary as automation replaces more and more jobs. The Into the Black contest is looking for science fiction short stories that explore futures in which the universal basic income has been implemented. Those stories can be either utopian or dystopian. The point is to foster discussion. The other judges include Jenna Wortham of the New York Times, Alexis Montregal of The Atlantic, science fiction author Hanu Ryanimi, Angelina Burnett, producer of the TV shows Halt and Catch Fire and The Americans, and Mike Krieger, co-founder of Instagram. The contest is open to U.S. residents, and the deadline is November 1st. For more details, visit economicsecurityproject.org. So again, the contest is called Into the Black, Speculative Economies, and you can learn more over at economicsecurityproject.org. All right, so now let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Bill Nye. Welcome to the show. It's so good to be here. Okay, so you say in your book, uh, I was drawn to space and to an optimistic view of the future, perhaps because I grew up with the original Star Trek. So could you just talk a bit more about how you got into science fiction and what kind of an impact it had on you? Well, keep in mind, I am of an age where uh, space flight was this new big deal. Uh, I was born right before Sputnik flew, and I grew up with the Cold War effort to get humans on the moon. And along with that, during the 1960s, you know, people still talk about the Kennedy administration and Camelot, and they just did another show about Jackie Kennedy, and there was this optimism uh, in, uh, in the United States that was based on technology and technological achievement through rocket science. And so I, I was brought up in that era. And along with that emerged the original Star Trek. Now, this is when uh, racial issues, which are still with us, were first, in, well, I'm not an expert on this, but first being discussed openly. The starship was run by, I mean, it was driven or guided by a, an Asian helmsman with a former Soviet Union navigator, and um, the communications officer was of African-American descent, and the science officer was not even human, Hmm. and yet everybody got along, and there was uh, 
this um, working relationship that was to be respected and admired while they were doing rocket science, flying around the universe. It's cool. <laughs> I mean, was there other science fiction that you were really into? Well, I read the, the Asimov um, the trilogy, and uh, I read all the Twilight, read the Twilight Zone stories, and I watched them on black and white television. I watched The Outer Limits. I watched uh, all these old science fiction movies that would run on Thursday nights on WTTG in Washington, D.C. And uh, this expectation that there's something bigger than we are. And so that has, it had a big effect on me. Yeah, it was really the optimistic science fiction, you think, that, that appealed to you the most? Well, that's what appealed to me about Star Trek. It still does, is that the idea that in the future people aren't really that concerned about money, that, that everybody's got enough, that you can fly around the universe and do extraordinary things because the technology's figured out and shared uh, with everybody. And that was really, uh, really influential uh, to me. But the apocalyptic science fiction is everywhere. I mean, I am of... Uh, an age growing up in a city in which we went in the hallway and tucked, ducked and covered, prepared for nuclear war. My parents and I went to uh, the hardware store to look on how look at plans to build a fallout shelter. And uh, after just a little while, everybody realized that this would be completely impractical. You're just not going to live through it. Mm-hmm. So that's um, apocalyptic science fiction was a real was pretty close to home for me growing up. Yeah. Are you watching TV science fiction these days? Like, what do you think about shows like The Expanse? Have you seen that? No. I I, I tell you, I just finished another 12 shooting, another 12 episodes of Save the World. And uh, Bill Nye Saves the World. And I haven't watched much science fiction of late. But I'll be back. I'll be back. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I really highly recommend The Expanse. It's set in outer space, and it's really it's more serious hard science fiction than anything that's been on television in a long time. Uh, good. What makes it serious and hard? Well, there's no faster than a light travel, and there's no teleporters or um, things like that. You know, it's set. What about uh, a replicator? <laughs> uh, there's no there's no replicators either. Um, you know, it's set in the hollow deck. Uh, there's no holodeck. Nope. Um, you know, it's set in the near future in this with, it's all within the solar system so far. And there's, you know, ice haulers and, um, you know, space stations, but it's all, all pretty much, um, technology that is, is pretty plausible extrapolations of stuff that exists right now. All right. Uh, I will keep an eye out on it, uh, for it. Yeah. Yeah. One more thing on the list. One more thing on the Netflix Hulu list. Yeah. Um, and so reading your book, I thought it was kind of interesting. You talk about Back to the Future and that had a kind of uh, played a role in getting you into the whole media business. Could you talk about how you uh, you sort of called in to complain about Back to the Future? Uh, I didn't complain. Oh, no, I was very supportive. The uh, host of the radio show, who's still a dear friend of mine, 
said something gigawatts, and I called him and I said, in science, we prefer to say gigawatts with what you would call in linguistics a hard G. And this led to a discussion of back to the future and time travel and so on. And then that led to me calling him every day at 4.35 to do to answer a listener science question. It was a little whimsical. The other thing about back to the future during uh, Tipper Gore's uh, influence in the 1990s, there was a movement to have to require television stations to have three hours of educational programming every week. Now, that was an extraordinary thing, everybody. Uh, nobody wanted to be required. Nobody who owned a television station or a station group wanted to be told what to do for three hours every week. So Back to the Future franchise created the Back to the Future cartoon show. And then within that show, they created, John Luden was one of the guys, and Bob Gale wrote the original, created this educational moment where our heroes, Marty and the gang, would go back or forward in time and end up in a predicament and in order to get out of it, they'd have to learn some science. And so they hired the actor Christopher Lloyd, the guy who plays Doc Brown. <laughs> and um, and uh, we did this thing called the Video Encyclopedia. And I was on camera for the Video Encyclopedia. And that's that was a, a, a brick in the ziggurat of my career, in the stepped pyramid of my career. Well, could you talk about the balloon experiment that you did for that? Because that was a really interesting anecdote in the book. Oh, yeah. So, uh, everybody, this is, if you haven't done this, I encourage you to do it. Inflate a balloon with your breath and hang it by a string from something so it's free to swing around, a lampshade or what have you. And then uh, get another balloon, inflate it, same way. And rub it on your hair and bring it near the first one. Generally, there'll be an interaction. There'll be a static electricity repelling and then attraction as the charge gets distributed. Uh, the charge uh, will move around the balloons, but only to a limited extent. Anyway, I wanted to get the two balloons to stick together and then pull one balloon with the other one, which is an old science demonstration, the classic, a time-honored, a wonderful thing. Anyway, it wasn't working because I rubbed the balloon on my hair, which was full of ha hairspray because they have a makeup artist and all this product, as we call it in the business, hair product. And then the... Um, uh, I stood there holding the balloon while they moved the lights around as they want to do. And then the charge dissipated and the effect didn't work. So then immediately, <laughs> two and a half seconds later, they come in with glue, spray adhesive, and spray it on the balloon. And now they stick together, but it just doesn't <laughs> look right. And it just was frustrating. And so I decided that... Someday, when I have an opportunity to do this, I'm not going to fake it. So we, on the Science Guy show, we did not fake it. Yeah, I just think that's so admirable because so much of television, even the 
quote unquote reality TV is completely fake and staged. And just to have something on television that's real, I think is so important. Well, it's, it's exceptional in that it was a science show. I mean, it wasn't when you're telling a story, I think it's a, a fine thing to have uh, special effects and so on. But when you're doing science demonstrations, you don't want to say it's one thing when it's really something else. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, speak, and speaking of science, I mean, you talk about some really interesting cutting-edge science in this book. Uh, one thing that kind of jumped out at me is you say that one of the technologies you're hoping to see in the future is carbon nanotube power transmission lines. Could you talk about what the implications Hell of that yeah. would be? Yeah. Well, it would change the world. Is that a big deal? <laughs> so I had uh, the extraordinary opportunity to interview Rick Smalley. Richard Smalley was one of the discoverers of Buckminster Fullerenes, which uh, Buckminster Fuller was uh, the architect who promoted the idea of consegrity or geodesic domes, consegrity mass and geodesic domes. These shapes based on triangles and, and polygons that are especially efficient. So as to say they don't have very much material in them for how much volume they take up or enclose. Anyway, Rick Smalley discovered buckyballs as they came to be called, these spheres of 60 carbon atoms that have these extraordinary properties. If you could, and his dream was to manufacture these things in meter-long tubes, kilometer-long tubes, and they would be 10,000 times stronger than steel and weigh about a sixth as much. Furthermore, as far as he could tell, he won a Nobel Prize, unlike many of us. Hmm. Uh, he was awarded a Nobel Prize. Uh, as far as he could tell, these things were superconducting or are superconducting. He said it's as though the electron falls asleep at one end of the nanotube, has a dream, and wakes up at the other end of the nanotube. This being um, quantum mechanics and particle physics that is uh, often counterintuitive. And so he talked about having carbon nanotube transmission lines, and he talked about the need of terawatts of energy in China and Asia, terawatts across North America that would be moved around, electricity be moved around on these extraordinary power lines made of carbon, made of dirt. And so uh, he was really enthusiastic about it. And I got to say, that interview really made a heck of an impression on me because he would talk for a few minutes and then have to sort of lean against his desk and sit down. He would talk for a few minutes, lean against his because he was dying of cancer. And he, he, was, he was a heck of a guy, Rick Smalley. So uh, he described this technology to me, and I've been thoroughly charmed about the possibility of it for a decade now. How, um, how soon do you think that might become a reality? Oh, this weekend. I don't know. <laughs> uh, what we say in um, what we say, by that I mean I, thirty years. What we say in um, in nuclear fusion. Nuclear fusion is always forty years away. Carbon nanotubes might be less than that. <laughs> uh, nanotube power lines, transmission lines, might be less than that. Yeah.
Well, I mean, one thing that is uh, is happening right now is something you're doing with the Planetary Society, which is the Light Sail 2. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, so love this thing, everybody. Uh, what happened is, was I took one class from Carl Sagan, famous astronomer, uh, when I was in engineering school. I finished my engineering requirements. I took one class. And then a few years later, he and a couple other guys started something called the Planetary Society. Now, one of Carl Sagan's dreams, and especially one of the other founders, Lou Friedman, one of their dreams was to have what we call a solar sail spacecraft. So although photons, particles of light, have no mass, they nevertheless are pure energy and they have momentum. And so uh, if you have a low enough mass spacecraft with enough area, it gets pushed through space by photons. So this uh, has been exploited by, inter by interplanetary missions from time to time. The messenger spacecraft got a little push from sunlight. But we wanted to build one on purpose and get it pushed through space, so we did. And uh, if you get a chance, take a look at the pictures on our website at planetary.org. It's a cool little thing. And the idea is to lower the cost of especially interplanetary spaceflight between here and Mars, between here and Jupiter, by not having to have rocket fuel. You just use sunlight. And this thing has been tested, this idea has been tested a few times. The Japanese built a cool light sail, but, or solar sail rather, but it uh, had not any fault of the sails, but the mission had a misfire in it in a very elongated orbit around the sun. It took uh, quite a while to get it back on track in the orbit around Venus, which was the goal. But the Planetary Society is a private organization, just nonprofit, people around the world who just think this is a cool idea and support it. And the idea, our mission at the Planetary Society is to advance space science and exploration. So by creating spacecraft that essentially democratize spaceflight, we are advancing space science and exploration. And uh, we're very excited about this. We have a proprietary gizmo that deploys the sails. And we have this cool new or new and improved software. So we are on the Falcon Heavy second flight. Now, everybody loves SpaceX. They're doing extraordinary things, and their go-to rocket is the Falcon 9, which has nine of their Merlin engines. Well, the Falcon Heavy is three Falcon 9s strapped together, 27 engines, and uh, we're uh, they have they haven't they have yet to fly the first one. They will soon, I'm pretty sure they will soon. We are on the manifest for the second flight. So for those of you out there who want to advance space science and exploration, check out planetary.org <laughs> and consider uh, supporting this mission. It's cool. So do you have plans for Light Sail 3? Not right now, but uh, people have talked about flying to the moon and so on. Now, uh, take, you know, taking it up and people have talked about having an interplanetary regatta. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 
I got to say, very cool thing to me. I, I've been to Japan. I've been to JAXA, the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency, JAXA. And it's so, the design of these things is so, if I may, cultural. Here in the States, we designed a thing that uses what we call in spaceflight called a tape measure boom. So the boom is the thing that holds any sail in its shape, right, on a sailboat, the boom. Well, these booms are made of this crazy, beautiful cobalt steel. It's, um, it's a ribbon that's stitch-welded to another ribbon. And they're just crazy stiff for how lightweight they are and how t tightly they can be stored, can be compressed. Well, the Japanese idea is origami, where the thing unfolds like a carefully folded piece of paper. It's just really cool. So it's a... Uh, we're really excited about be flying again to a higher altitude, do more maneuvers, get more pictures, and advance the technology. We're excited. <laughs> so um, check us out at planetary.org. Yeah, that sounds really, really cool. I mean, th there's that. And then the other thing in your the book that I thought was sounded really cool is you're talking about this OSIRIS-REx um, technology, and you say that it could someday be used to mine asteroids and do manufacturing in space. Could you well, well, okay. People talk about manufacturing in space all the time, but that really hasn't panned out yet. I'm not saying it won't. That's not what I said. <laughs> Just this idea that you could create molecules with no in zero gravity or uh, microgravity that you can't create on Earth is a cool idea. It's a very cool idea. But uh, people have discussed, and maybe intuitively, going to an asteroid that's made of platinum and dragging the asteroid close enough to the Earth that it's accessible for conventional spacecraft, and we'd have you know this giant rock full of platinum. Well, it turns out to be not so easy. The asteroids are pretty far away, and moving an asteroid around is quite difficult. So instead, the, the resource guys and gals have this other closely related idea that many, many asteroids are made of water ice or have a lot of water ice on them or incorporated in them. Water is such a common and stable molecule that uh, uh, you can find it extant on asteroids. So the idea is you drive up to an asteroid and use sun, sunlight, to make electricity, convert the water ice into hydrogen and oxygen, which in turn can be used as rocket fuel to take you to the next gener destination, next generation, the next destination in the solar system that you want to go to. It's a cool idea, but uh, we're not there yet. But you got to think big to do big. Make no small plans. So more power to them, man. It's just cool. Spaceflight brings out the best in us, in humankind, when we solve these problems that have never been solved before. To me, it's inherently optimistic. And to get back to your first question about Star Trek or space flight science fiction expanse and so on, is this is it brings people together to solve problems that have never been solved before, and that's good. And our investment in space always comes back multifold in uh, advancement in technology and especially 
in the expectations of societies of what can be accomplished. If they can put a man on the moon, why can't they blink? <laughs> and we can do a lot of that blink. But so you think the asteroids are primarily going to serve as a stepping stone to far to deeper space, and we're not going to be getting the platinum uh, out of them? Uh, not right now, no. I mean, not in, certainly. I don't think in my lifetime. Uh, but you know, never say never. Just it's just not so easy. What instead, what is of great interest to me, is not getting hit by an asteroid, as an Earthling. You know. Uh, I am so old. How old are you? I'm so old that I remember when nobody really had an, a, a good or reasonable theory about the demise of the ancient dinosaurs. People thought that the mammals somehow outcompeted them, that maybe they got a, an especially dinosaur-born disease that enabled mammals to outcompete them and so on. But now, in my lifetime, People generally agree that it was an asteroid that hit what is now right off the coast of Chicxulub, what is now Mexico. And this asteroid darkened the earth for months on end, and it killed all the vegetation, and the uh, ancient dinosaurs that relied on the vegetation died out. Uh, and they also may have been subject to some other uh, volcanism, a lot of sulfur in the atmosphere and so on. But the getting hit with an asteroid is a drag. <laughs> you probably only get one of those. It was the most recent and the most uh, well-known mass extinction, ancient dinosaurs, 65 million years ago. We don't want to do it again, unless we're in a mass extinction right now, which we seem to be. How close do you think we are to having the technology to deflect an asteroid? Oh, we could do it. We could do it if we decided to. The key to it is you have to identify, you have to find these things. They're in deep space. And the way people describe it, it's like looking for a charcoal briquette in the dark. It's just, they're hard to find. They're, they don't reflect very much light, and outer space is full of dark. And so what we want to do is have well-funded programs to track asteroids and then develop the rocket we need to give the thing a nudge. So it, when it crosses the Earth's orbit, we are not there. <laughs> <laughs> so it misses the Earth. And this is a cool idea, but we have the rocket science to do it. It just requires the visionary investment. Now, there is there are spacecraft that do a little of this, and we have increased the funding for interplanetary or the search for asteroids, interplanetary assays. But a lot more could be done, and the, it's a very low probability event of very high consequence. So it's something to do it. our society should be doing in the background all the time, just working on this, where are the asteroids, where are they going to cross the Earth's orbit? Yeah, absolutely. I saw a video where you were proposing that NASA's budget should be increased 5% every year for five years. Yeah, that would be great. That would be fantastic. Yeah, but I'm not king of the forest. Uh, however, I am the CEO of the Planetary Society, <laughs> and there is a candidate for uh, the new NASA administrator uh, who, who would uh, – he, he, we would support him. 
as we have supported all NASA administrators since 1980. But uh, if Jim Bridenstine gets the nod, uh, we will be very supportive. He's a congressman from Oklahoma whose term is limited. He's going to have to move out of office, which is an Oklahoman idea. And uh, he's a Navy pilot, and he, although uh, he has said some extraordinary things, if he gets the nod, we will support him. Interesting. I saw that you, uh, the other big thing you're promoting is a, a humans orbiting Mars. You think that should be the next step for NASA? Well, if I'm king of the forest, and I'm not if I were, we want to do everything all at once. Uh, the first thing for me is to search for life on Mars. And by first thing, a very high priority thing. And this requires three missions. The next one is the first one. 2020 rover will be a spacecraft, very much like the Curiosity rover, which is up there now roving. Hmm. That would drive around looking for good rock samples. You know, that when you talk to geologists, they love rocks. That's their thing. Every rock tells a story. And when they get carried away, like in the geology bar, they'll tell you that they can tell who the president was by looking at the rocks. In fact, they can tell you who the president's going to be by looking at the right rocks. They get a little carried away. <laughs> they got together for what they call the decadal survey. What do we want to do over the next 10 years? And what they all want is to bring back samples, rock samples from Mars. So the 2020 rover will sample the Martian surface with these hollow drills, very cool, beautiful things, super sterilized, turned up to 11 sterilization, and uh, just leave them on the Martian surface. Then the next spacecraft will go and pick those samples up, and then the spacecraft after that will take them into orbit around Mars and then bring them back to Earth. And we presume we would examine the samples very, very carefully the way we examples, examine samples from asteroids, example from, I'm kidding. Uh, uh, so this is something we can do and the geologists very much want to do and it's in the queue to be done. But for me, I would very much like NASA and space agencies around the world to coordinate to look for signs of life because I claim that the discovery of life on Mars or on Europa, the moon of Jupiter with twice as much seawater as the Earth, the discovery of life on Mars would change the course of human history. It would change the way everybody feels about being a living thing in the cosmos. If it turns out that Martian microbes exist, that or did exist, that would be amazing if they turned to stone like stromatolites or whatever, layers of fossil bacteria. But what if they're still alive? And what if they have DNA? Are the Martian microbes like us, or are they completely eatly different form of life? Would just be extraordinary. It'd be like showing that the Earth goes around the sun instead of the other way around. You know, Galileo took a military instrument, a 30-power tele telescope, but had the presence of mind to point it at the moon. And he said, hey, the moon is full of craters and valleys. It's very rough. Well, we've got to put you in prison. Galileo, I'm sorry, man. We can't let you leave your house for the rest of your life. Why? Well, because 
And so anyway, these sort of these discoveries changed the course of history. And NASA's uh, planetary science budget is less than $2 billion a year. And if you work with, if NASA were to work with the European Space Agency, Japanese exploration, and then ultimately someday the Chinese Space Administration, who knows what could be accomplished in the search for life. It would just be a wonderful thing. So there's spacecraft orbiting Mars right now that are aging. And if nothing goes wrong, that'll be fine. They have a lot of fuel on board for maneuvering. But if something goes wrong or the mission managers retire and don't pass on all the nuances of running the mission, the spacecraft, things will go wrong and we will not have the capability to get data back from Mars and blah, blah, blah. So we want to do everything all at once and explore and look for signs of life. Oh, yeah. So about sending people there to Mars, it's what people want to do. It's the, it's the horizon goal. People want to go to Mars. So the Planetary Society sponsored a study where we show that you could send people to Mars and put them in orbit around Mars in 2033. And orbiting first has great precedent. I was alive for Apollo 8, which orbited the moon before anybody landed there. That's the way you do it. And that Apollo 8 is where you got the extraordinary picture, which we call Earthrise, taken by Bill Anders on the eve of Isaac Newton's birthday, 24th December, 1968. And it changed, changed the world, changed the way everybody felt about the Earth. You saw the Earth as this delicate sphere suspended in the blackness of space. It was amazing. And so if we could put humans in orbit around Mars, then you could have humans land on Mars two, four, maybe six years later. And that would be an amazing adventure. And the claim is, our claim is we could do this without increasing the NASA budget except to uh, adjust for inflation. You just have to change things. You have to reprioritize what you spend money on to uh, advance space science and human exploration to get humans in orbit and then on the surface of Mars. But first, let's make sure we don't contaminate Mars searching for life, and let's make sure we search for life. <laughs> People, come on. It would be fantastic, and we do it with robotic spacecraft that are so inexpensive compared to all the other wild things we do. <laughs> Come on, it'll be cool. Well, actually, I mean, speaking of that, in the book, you talk about going to Washington, D.C. and meeting with members of Congress. And I'm just kind of curious, what is your impression of, like, how are those meetings going and how receptive are they to what you have to say about space exploration and science generally? In general, everybody, congressmen, senators, support space exploration in general. There's a couple... Uh, practical, first of all, a couple of spiritual reasons. Everybody knows it's just cool to explore space. Everybody knows it's a source of national pride, be it the U.S. or any country. Vietnam has a space program, for crying out loud, because it brings out the best in your society, brings out rocket scientists, if nothing else, are created. Uh, but the other practical thing is people have NASA centers in their districts. They have businesses that are supported by space exploration, be it 
civilian space exploration, where you have people going to the International Space Station, military space exploration, where you build all kinds of spy satellites, and uh, then all this commercial space exploration. You know, we we have this extraordinary worldwide communications network. We have the internet because we have space. We have we can tell you where Hurricane Irma is going to go within pick a number, 10 nautical miles, because we have satellites that measure atmospheric pressure and can observe a tropical depression from space. So we have mobile phones that tell us which side of the street you're standing on because of space. So everybody in Congress supports space exploration. What we want to do is get everybody focused so that we explore Mars looking for life, Europa looking for life, and not get hit with an asteroid. <laughs> I mean, one of the points you make in the book is that you feel like the American experiment has gone as well as it has because so many of the founding fathers were scientists. Do you think we need to get more scientists, more politician scientists in government? Well, that's what everybody's pushing for. Yeah, I think it'd be great. But we want, just if society, if our society here in the U.S. were just a little more scientifically literate overall, we would be making better decisions, so-called fact-based decisions, and respecting the process of science uh, enables us to have basic research, which leads to innovation, which leads to economic competitiveness. If you stop basic research, you're not going to have innovation, and you won't be able to compete. That's Nobody disagrees with that, but we have to fund it. And what we say at the National Science Teachers Association is we want science every day in every grade, preschool through 12, every day in every grade. And if you're a teacher, elementary teacher, and you do science, kids love it. It's, they're great. You're entertaining kids and engaging them and educating them and teaching them to think. It's win, 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 win. So we want to promote the investment in science education at all levels. And this, I think, will eventually lead to a scientifically literate uh, voting populace, will lead to scientifically literate congressional members, senators, and executives that will uh, change the world. So getting scientists to run for Congress is a great idea. And, you know, Fortune 500 com companies are almost all run by engineers, people who use science to make things and solve problems. And so the more of that we have in government, the better. The more representative government is of our academic achievements, I think, the better off we are. And, yeah, I think the founding fathers who wrote the U.S. Constitution were nerds. They were trying to design a system that was flexible enough to improve the quality of life for everyone, the pursuit of happiness for everyone. They wanted to design a system that was inherently fair and had within it built in a mechanism for change, the peaceful transfer of power and so on. Well, right. And speaking of those sort of win-win-win things you were just talking about, one thing that really struck me in the book is how you talk about how converting to a renewable energy infrastructure would just be a win in so many different ways. Uh, it just seems like a no-brainer to do that. 
Well, except it's a hard thing. I mean, we have depended on fossil fuels for a couple centuries. Our electricity is mostly created or generated rather by fossil fuels. And the fossil fuel industry has been very successful in promoting itself and keeping itself in business. But uh, if we were to pursue renewable energy the way we pursued going to the moon, the way we pursued winning the Second World War, we could do that. We could go make all our electricity renewable. You could do 80% in 20 years. You could do 100% in twice that, or 50 years. And this is in everybody's best interest. Uh, Iowa, the state of Iowa now makes 25% of its electricity from the wind. And that's competing head-to-head with fossil fuels. Oklahoma is at 20%. Texas in the springtime is at 10% of its electricity comes from the wind. So we, I'm not saying wind is the single answer. It's wind, solar, geothermal, and tidal energy put together. Don't close any of the existing nuclear power plants. And you can run the whole place renewably right now. So let's go, people. Those jobs cannot be outsourced. When you erect a wind turbine in Iowa, those are Iowan workers. Even if the wind turbine is is built in the wind, the turbine blades are built in Sweden. They're still put up in Iowa. There's no way to outsource those jobs. And connecting that to the grid is local workers, blue-collar workers working right here in the United States. Like, why people don't want to pursue this is the only answer that's reasonable is the fossil fuel industry is just is reluctant to change. And I told those Exxon executives in 1994, said, you guys, you got to be in the energy business, not the oil business. And uh, the Exxon people who were wrote memos about climate change in 1977 were all, were all escorted out of the company one way or the other. It just needs just a, a little bit of vision. It doesn't, this is not as I like to joke, rocket surgery. This is not extraordinary thing. These technologies exist. This, the dream we have right now in the electrical vehicle community is so-called grid-to-vehicle, vehicle-to-grid, where everybody drives an electric car and everybody's car is used to store electricity for everybody. And this is just a cool idea that's, that's almost ready right now. And uh, by the way, everyone, after you drive an electric car, you will not go back. <laughs> what is every, what, once again, SpaceX, what does everybody love? Elon Musk and Tesla. It's a, they're fantastic cars. Right now, I'm driving a Chevy Bolt. Well, right now, I'm talking with you. <laughs> uh, when I'm in a car, I'm driving a Chevy Bolt. Bolt with a B like Bravo. 230 miles range. Uh, you guys, when you get a car that goes 230 miles, there's very few of us that commute farther than that every day. Well, yeah, I just want to draw people's attention. I mean, the you said we could have this done by 2050, and this is the Solutions Project, right? They, they have a, a um, yeah. co-founded by Mark Jacobson at Stanford. They have a specific plan for how we could do this. You can go and look at the details right now. It's, it's totally doable. And so what I say, everybody, these are civil engineers. These are not 
hippies who want to live off the grid. These are engineers who want the grid to be even better, but the electrical grid to be even better than it is now. And there's nothing more distributed than sunlight. But for historic and reasonable reasons, as I like to joke, we have concentrated electricity production. You have a giant turbine driven by coal or natural gas, and you make electricity in a big power plant. But sunlight's distributed everywhere. So let's augment that by using the distributed nature of sunlight to have distributed electricity production with photovoltaics, solar panels. Let's go. Let's do it. Let's get it done. I mean, based on your meetings with these congressmen, do you have any sense of how many they understand this reality and they're just afraid of the power of the fossil fuel industry and how many of them are actually ideologically opposed to renewable energy? Well, the story goes, now, if you talk to the people at the Union of Concerned Scientists who spend a lot of time with, in Congress, apparently there is a large cohort of conservatives who are ready to do something about climate change. They're ready, the expression is, hold hands and jump together. But we'll see what happens in the next couple of years. Uh, as uh, hur Hurricane Irma and Hurricane Harvey, I believe, will raise a little bit of awareness in those states. You know, it's very difficult to tie any one event to uh, global warming and climate change in real time. But uh, as analysis goes on over the next couple of years, I'm pretty sure those storm events will be tied to global warming directly by computer models. And this eventually will soak in, pun intended, and people will get to work on it. As, with more heat energy in the atmosphere, storms are going to be more intense, one way or the other. There's just the Gulf of Mexico has never been this warm. It created this enormous storm, and now a second one, Irma, is following on Harvey. And these things are very, not only is there just a tremendous hardship when all your possessions are ruined, a few of your relatives drown or disappear, which is horrible. But along with that is the cost. When you go to rebuild Houston, the fourth largest city in the U.S., somebody's going to pay for it, and it's going to be all of us. Everybody, let's stop it. Let's get to work. Come on. Let's do something about this. Well, I was just watching another interview with you, and, I, and you said something I, I thought was really striking, where you said that people imagine uh, the oceans rising as being this apocalyptic thing, like out of a science fiction movie where the Statue of Liberty is up to her waist in water. And you said that's not what it's going to be like. It's just going to be in so many regions, there's going to be a couple of inches of water on your floor, and you can never get rid of it. You can't get rid of it, and you're going to leave. There's places in the city of Miami where they will not insure your car because it parks, because where you park has too much salt water. So the steel and the wheels and the undercarriage or the unibody of the car rust. And there's nothing anybody can do about it because that's where you park because that's where you live. Because seawater in Miami especially is coming two ways. Irma's going to blow it over the street, but it's also coming right up through the limestone because the ocean is getting bigger because it's getting warmer. And it makes when the ocean gets bigger, it uh, rises where you live on the seacoast. 
Half the people in the world live on sea coasts, so half the people in the world are being affected by rising sea levels. Now, if you don't believe me, the U.S. military is very concerned about this. It's, uh, let's get to work, people. Come on, let's do something about this. Well, but you do say in the book that among young people, there's a lot of a high level of understanding of the reality of climate change and the implications of it, that this is a problem of sort of older Fox News watching viewers primarily. Well, uh, I will say this about Fox News. I will challenge Fox News right now. What else what else do you guys talk about except how bad the other side is? What else do you have going on without uh, straw men and women to knock down? What else is your deal? Uh, how much do you report on what's really going on? And this belief in the conspiracy of the deep state is at some level very troubling because there's no such thing. On another level, it's just silly. It's blaming an organization for your troubles that the organization doesn't exist. It's like shouting at ghosts or something. And I just wish those guys and gals would cut it out and go back to being regular journalists and being productive. What else would you talk about right now except how bad the other side... I watch Fox all the time trying to understand them. And what we have now is a situation where people feel disenfranchised and... So it manifested itself quite strongly in Charleston, Virginia, the other week. And uh, you end up, it's perfectly analogous to me, to the kid who says, I'm going to take my toys and go home because I'm so mad at you. We have people acting against their own self-interest out of anger or disenchantment. And we have to... We have to find ways, people talk about bringing people together. We have to find ways to get people to act in their best interests rather than against their best interests. And so it's going to be a long road, but let's get started. <laughs> so climate denial, to get back to your first thing there, is largely generational. There's very few, once in a while, you'll meet a young person who's in climate change denial, but very seldom. Climate change denial is almost always older people. And it's going to be a near-run thing for humankind. Are those older people going to age out and stop voting before or after it's too late to do a lot about climate change in the medium and short term? We'll see. Changing people's minds is really difficult. But I, I think of uh, the guy I think about often in this regard is Chad Myers who was the meteorologist at CNN. I think he was something like, he is something like chief meteorologist. He changed his mind. He used to say climate change wasn't a big problem. Now he says it is. His daughter is 11 or 12 now, and it's on his mind. And I confronted Mark Morano, another climate denier, and I said, what about your kids? And he, he uh, was at a loss for words. It's on, it's on camera. He was at a loss for words uh, because kids are... That's the reason you live as a parent, is to pass your genes on. And if you pass your genes on to an environment that you ruined, you're, not, you're just not doing your, a very good job as a parent. And so we'll see what happens as uh, the kids and grandkids of deniers come of age. But everybody, let's get to, let's be optimistic. 
watch my show, read my book, turn it up loud, all those things. Well, yeah, so we're pretty much out of time. So I did want to give you a chance to just let people know. Do you want to just say a little bit more about your show or any other things you just want people to go check out? Well, planetary.org. I'm the CEO. We optimistic view of the future through space exploration. Then uh, check out the Solutions Project, the solutions.org, the solutionsproject.org. I mean, and then you guys, I did another, I just shot, we just shot another 12 episodes of Bill Nye Saves the World, which will start streaming on Netflix soon enough. Uh, the first 13 are already on the service, as you call But we did 12 more. I'm very proud of them. We had more resources the second season. We, did, we shot one show a day instead of two, and that alone just made the shows, the new shows kind of cool, cooler. Not that the old shows aren't great. <laughs> so watch those. And uh, by old, I mean, they're less than a year old. Uh, and of course, buy my book. It's New York Times bestseller. I can't say enough good things. Uh, thank you for reading it. Sounds like you really did read it. I really appreciate it, man. Yep, yep. I read and, the whole uh, book. I took lots of notes. All of my ideas. All of my ideas about how we can all work together for a better future. And I hope at some level it's fun. I mean, I hope it's interesting and fun to read at some level. So take a look. Yeah, so everyone definitely check out the book again. It's called Everything All at Once, and the author is Bill Nye. And so, Bill, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Let's save the world. <laughs> and that was our interview. So a big thanks again to Bill Nye for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to William Gosling, Rich Dana, and Grant Riley, who all just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. And don't forget to check out the Economic Security Project and learn more about their Into the Black short story contest with a grand prize of $12,000 over at economicsecurityproject.org. All right, so that was our show. So thanks to everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.